Welcome back to Dirty Harry Minute. This is John. Hope you've all had a great 2023. Hope you enjoyed our coverage of Coon Coon, the Indian remake of Dirty Harry. That was a lot of fun. We have another episode for you today, which will feature three pieces of fan fiction. You may recall when Harry first meets Chico, the inspector grumbles to Bressler that all the previous partners he's had have not lasted, and he mentions Dietzik in hospital with bullets in his guts and Fanducci's dead. So some of our listeners have been kind enough to come up with some possibilities, some fan fiction, if you will allow it, on how Fanducci and Dietzik may have met their end. So thanks to Daniel Thompson, Austin Pond, for both their writing and their vocal talents for narrating the fan fiction. The rest of the episode is some bits and bobs, There's a bit of San Fran talk, courtesy of the Total SF podcast. I suggest you check that out. Very good. And some other loud Americans on their podcasts about Dirty Harry. So, coming up next year, and hopefully in a few weeks, in fact, I have an interview I did with Professor Joe Street, who wrote a great book about Dirty Harry and we review the movie and its sequels very long episode actually I'll probably put it into two parts so look out for that next year early next year and for the moment please enjoy some more Dirty Harry fan fiction bye for now Hi, this is Andy Robinson. I'd never, never in a million years listen to or guest on the Dirty Harry Minute podcast. Scorpio, on the other hand, probably couldn't get enough. But I've got him chained down in the basement. Um, (laughs) um, The film that will never die. Yes, great moments. At the Mount Davidson Cross. Uh... And, you know, getting beaten up in strange cellars. Fabulous time. Uh, you know, I had, I had the time of a lifetime, actually, in that role. Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, I'm, and, and here it is. What, I, how many? Over 50 years later, and, and we're still talking about this guy. But that's uh, okay with me. I'm very proud of the work. So, John, take care of yourself. Continue to, like, uh, follow your own beat of the drum and your own path. Take care, my friend. Missing. One police inspector. Name, Harry Callahan. Description, tall, intense face, narrowed eyes. Last seen leaving San Francisco City Hall shaking his head on the day the monster came. Present location, an unmapped corner 
of the Twilight Zone. Right on Time by Austin Pond. Harry still couldn't see it. Stealing Antique's defense, he could understand. Buying them? He just couldn't get his head around. He shook his head silently at the dusty old stuff filling every nook in the small shop and walked back to the front where Franducci was interviewing the owner. Harry had seen all he needed to. There had been a string of antique shop robberies over the last few weeks, and so far there were no leads. Franducci had compiled a list of all the remaining joints that hadn't been hit yet, and over the last couple of days, they'd spent all shift driving across town, inspecting security, to see which shops would be the easiest to hit. This one seemed like a miss to Harry. Good bars on the windows and doors, good locks, and a decent alarm. There were a couple guys yesterday, looked bent to me. Didn't buy anything. It's not unusual, though, the owner said, as Harry approached. Okay, said Fanducci. He handed the owner a business card. If you see anyone suspicious, give us a call. As for Fanducci, Callahan raised his eyebrows. As for Callahan, refined Fanducci. Jesus, there's a lot of these places, Harry said as he crossed this shop off the list. He looked at his watch. Time for lunch. Let's go get a couple of dogs. Harry lowered the binoculars and looked at his watch. A few ticks past 1 a.m. Next to him, Fanducci sipped a cup of coffee. You really think this is the one? Yeah, said Harry. Now back to squinting into the binoculars at the shop across the street. It's been three days since the last hit, so either we scared them off, or they're playing in the big one. Fanducci nodded. The antiques guy, uh, he said this was a tea shop back in the 1800s. Maybe we should have brought tea tonight instead of coffee. Harry grunted and squinted harder. A figure was moving down the alley between the warehouses. Maybe two figures. It was too dark to tell. There they are. I'll call for backup. You grab the shotgun. Don't want that 357 of yours getting us killed. All right, Harry whispered as they approached the shop from the far side. Nothing cute, nothing fancy. I'll go in the back, you go in the front. See if you can get it up to that catwalk we saw. Harry pulled his magnum from its holster. Right, Fanducci whispered, checking the shotgun again. Harry stood at the back door listening. The robbers had jimmied it open, and it stood open a crack. The inspector moved in closer and squinted into the darkness beyond. They were still near the door. He couldn't see them. He eased the door open just enough to slip through, holding his magnum at the ready. He looked around, assessing the danger. The back storeroom of the shop was two levels. Rows of library shelves full of old junk lined at the ground level while the upper catwalk around the perimeter seemed to store mainly grandfather clocks, all of which were ticking loudly away. Good cover for his footsteps, thought Harry, though he didn't care for old clocks any more than other antiques. A single bare light bulb glowed dimly high up on the front wall. It wasn't much help, and Harry continued to squint. Up ahead, he heard a shuffling sound. He moved carefully along the rows, peeking down each line of shelves before he moved on. Finally, near the front of the room, his eyes recorded a figure in dark clothes. Their back turned away from Harry, 
casually walking down the rows with a large sack in one hand, the source of the shuffling sound. Harry stepped out into the row and aimed his magnum. If it wasn't the middle of the night, God could think you're just shopping on a lazy Saturday. That, and the pistol in your back pocket, Harry growled. The man stiffened and dropped the sack, his hand reaching for the pistol. Harry took three long steps and pressed the barrel of the magnum into the man's back. I don't think you want to do that, Harry said. He took the pistol from the pocket and stepped back to a safer distance. Turn around and look at me. You're under arrest. The man turned. His eyes widened at the sight of Harry's magnum. Now, Harry said, you're going to tell me where your partner is. The man smirked slightly in spite of his fear. Where's yours? Don't pigs usually come in pairs? Harry's lips tightened. As he was about to speak, the sound of two shotgun blasts, almost at the same time, thundered somewhere in the front. Door splintered and sagged on its hinges. Harry aimed his gun at the man. Stay here. The inspector fired off a shot, aiming for the soft flesh. The man's leg gave and he collapsed to the ground. You broke my knee, you pig bastard, the robber shouted. Harry barely heard him. He ran to the front of the shop, shouldering what remained of the door open without slowing down. The inspector nearly tripped on the body of the second robber just past the door. A shotgun lay near the fallen hood. Further into the store, Fanducci lay among a mess of broken glass shelves and bits of antiques, his shotgun still in hand. Jesus, Harry whispered, moving forward to his partner and checking for a pulse. Nothing. Absolutely none. Harry was not surprised given the maelstrom in his chest. The inspector could hear the distant sound of police sirens. Back up. Always right on time, Harry grumbled. He gave one last look at the mess in the front of the store and turned away. This was one dirty job someone else could clean up. I see San Francisco day to day to day, so I'm anesthetized by the changes. Yes. What is it like coming back here every, I don't know, three months or so? Right. You, it's almost like seeing San Francisco change in stop motion animation. The biggest change, of course, is uh, the tech thing. And that uh, so many places that I love have been dishkanood um, beyond measure. Yeah. And people stand in line for ice cream in neighborhoods where once you ran to your bus yeah. because you didn't want to be stabbed to death. Um, what's happened around um, Mission Park and or Dolores Park, because uh, Zuckerberg moved there and all his little acolytes live there, uh, I think it's irrevocably changed that neighborhood. Sure. Um, my wife lived at 20th and Shotwell, where I lived with her for years. And... Uh, the Peruvian guy downstairs would often get drunk and like set fire to the apartment building. And you know, it was that kind of place. The rain poured through the top and couldn't get the landlord to do anything. Now those places are worth ungodly fortune. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was a bar next door called El Trebol that like you didn't go in. Um, and I had my friend Kathy had given me a car and I had a Buick Electric 225 that was giant, like 21 feet long, nine feet wide. And I parked it on the sidewalk. Because in the mission in those days, that's what you did. You just And I had a big crucifix hanging from my window, so no one fucked with me. <laughs> the idea that there's no more poverty here and no more homeless, that's ludicrous. There's yeah, just no, as much as there always was. Yeah. Um, it's not so much that there's not poor people. I think that there's just not as much middle class people. I don't know where 
the servers live? You know, like the people who work at the punchline day to day, can they even live here anymore? Or do they have to live in the East Bay? I assume it's like Bart from Pittsburgh Bay Point. Right? But, right? Yeah. I mean, is there an affordable apartment you can have in San Francisco? And as you say, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, there's, it's not as if this is this, you know, Pollyanna-ish place where everything is just wonderful. It has its long history of misdeeds and racial inequities and bigotry and corruption. And at the same time, it has, you know, heroism and grandeur. And the city itself, I just find uh, eternally fascinating, not least because of its stunning physical beauty and the fact that, you know, I can walk out of my apartment here onto a... Uh, Filbert Street on you know on, on the slopes of Telegraph Hill, and you you can look you're looking down at one of the great views of any city in the world, and this is available to people all over town. There's this real interesting personal quality of like my city betrayed me. This mm-hmm. I thought this was like a punk rock town, or I thought this was an avant-garde jazz town, or, I, or it was a language poetry town, and it, it sustained you know abstract painters and modern dancers. And now, and now people go, and it doesn't anymore, and I, I have to have a roommate, and I'm 50 years old. So, you know, a lot of that is understandable. Like, you don't want to just constantly be looking in the rearview mirror of the yeah. golden age when burritos were $2 and rent was <laughs> $250. It's like, yeah, the, it was nice when it was like that, but you got to roll with the punches. And that doesn't mean that you just lie down and accept all of the changes that are happening to the city, and you try to make it as good a place as possible. But you have to acknowledge that this is city life. Uh, San Francisco is probably city life on warp speed, Mm -hmm. but no matter where you live, uh, buildings are always being torn down, Uh, people are coming and going, there's some displacement. Officer Fanducci watched as a tall, lanky man wearing what looked like the cheapest suit money could buy approached him from across the street. The man stopped a few feet away, looked him up and down, and said, You must be Fanducci. I'm Callahan. Fanducci was momentarily taken aback. How'd you know? You're ethnic, wearing a tailored suit with a jacket one size too big. Mafia isn't in this part of town. So I got an Italian who's packing some heat. Then we get to your beady Italian eyes. You're scanning the street just like you were taught in the academy. So now all I need to know is, who do you piss off that you got partnered with me? Excuse me? Harry continued. I don't want or need a partner. And when I have one, they don't last long. I read your file. You were fast-tracked to make detective a rising star in your precinct. Then you get transferred all the way across the city with a clean record. So someone wants you off the force, but doesn't want it on the record. I just wanted a transfer and you were the one who needed a partner. Fanducci was lying. Callahan had him pegged. He had busted his precinct captain's son on a minor drug charge, but Fanducci didn't want to give this smug prick the satisfaction. And maybe you'd have better partners if you didn't dress like an orangutan. You look like you jog in that suit. Six months later. 
it was starting to seem like getting kicked out of his old precinct was the best thing that could have happened to Fanducci. His new beat was rougher, and Callahan seemed to attract trouble. But Callahan had the one quality that a lot of cops seem to lack these days. Callahan didn't care about playing the game or department politics. He just wanted justice. The two of them had taken more bad guys off the street in the last six months than Fanducci had in his last six years on the force. And tonight wasn't going to be any different. One of their snitches, a longshoreman, had told them about a smuggling ring operating out of the port of San Francisco. The state had just transferred ownership of the port to the city and it seems like the state never bothered to take out the trash. Callahan and Fanducci had been watching for weeks, and every time a shipment of liquor came in from a P&O ship, a few barrels would be redirected to a different warehouse, and the manifest would claim that many barrels were destroyed in transit. It was never enough to attract the company's attention, usually only two or three at a time. From their vantage point, they could see four barrels diverted from the rest. Tonight was the night they'd find out exactly what was being smuggled. Callahan and Fanducci moved slowly down the hill to the gate the snitch had left open for them. Fanducci whispered to Callahan, How do you want to do this? Callahan responded with a growl while pulling that ridiculous magnum out of its holster. Nothing cute. Nothing fancy. Fanducci shrugged and pulled out his much more sensible Model 28. The two then entered the port and made their way to the warehouse. The smugglers must have chosen this one for its seclusion, as there was almost no activity nearby, which made sneaking in a whole lot easier. After a few tries, the two found an unlocked door and slipped in. Fanducci took point. He was always the point man in Korea, and kept up the habit on the force. There was a short hallway before they made it to the open, or the brake barrels were stored in. In the center of the room, three men stood around the four barrels. One looked like a longshoreman. The other two, well, Harry had taught him well. They had a Mediterranean look, tailored suits, and jackets that were too big. Mafia. Fanducci started to move to cover behind a pallet of drums, just when one of the mobsters started to turn. The mobster only had time to say, Policia! before Fanducci put a round in his chest. The second mobster pulled a revolver and was about to pull the trigger, when Callahan's revolver thundered, and he collapsed like a sack of potatoes. The longshoreman then dove for one of the mobster's revolvers, but Callahan's revolver thundered again. Thanks, Harry, Banducci said as he took a step towards the bodies. Now let's find out what the mafia is smuggling in these barrels. Banducci holstered his revolver as he approached the barrels, and peered inside an open one. He didn't even have time to register what was in it when a fourth shot rang out, which was accompanied by the feeling of being punched in the kidneys. Collapsing, Fanducci saw Callahan's thunder tear into the man Fanducci had shot. The last thing he ever heard was Callahan mutter, That's why I carry the forty-four. What you're about to watch is a strange mortal combat between a psychopathic killer and a policeman, Inspector Harry Callahan, whose life has been given over to fighting adversaries, will find his most formidable opponent in an abandoned sawmill that is, in reality, 
the outskirts of the Twilight Zone. I know what you might be thinking. Like a lot of movies in San Francisco, a little bit problematic, very much of a time when people wanted someone to go out and blow people away. Um, I'm going to own that and say that as the years go on, this may go up on the list. Mm -hmm. But it was... I. I think the first San Francisco film that I really saw, and I probably saw it when I was way too young on VHS, and I just remember, like, as much as all the stuff was going on with Dirty Harry, that was the most I had seen of San Francisco in my life. Like, I hadn't been to Kizar Stadium, but I had heard about it all my life, and the Mount Davidson Cross, and um, Clint Eastwood, I just feel like as much as any actor even though he is from Oakland and lives in Carmel, I just believe him as a San Franciscan, mm-hmm. a San Francisco character. Um, and it's got just good, a good lean story. I love Dirty Harry. That's my number two. Okay. That is another one I have not seen. What? So, I know. It's crazy. <laughs> Don't watch it with the kids. <laughs> okay. Oh, one, one more positive thing about Dirty Harry. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a scene where he disparages someone putting ketchup on a hot dog. And I love that, too. I like mustard on a hot dog. Yeah, me too. Yes, we can still be friends. Because the bloke absolutely pummels him. And then he throws in that racist slur, doesn't he? You're like, Jesus, mate. (laughs) Yeah, the the language was very close to the bone at times. Which yeah. is, is fair enough, it's the 70s. I just think that despite the the short length of it, the film could have really been over after an hour without the, the repeating. That that is the only thing I can I can come up with. It almost wanted more of a subplot, didn't it? Maybe even like a subplot with Gonzalez with his partner. Yeah, it's just one story. We follow Harry throughout the whole film. Mm. I mean, there's, we, we there's hardly it. a scene without him. A lot of these films that we watch, they're often too long, and there's too much going on. This is, but this is a film which could have probably done with a with a counterpoint subplot. I'd like to see a little bit more of Gonzalez and the decision-making that leads to him quitting, maybe, and stuff. Oh, one minute he's a cop. He's been shot. I've had enough. And that's the last we see of him. And and I do think that is the the issue. They they rely on Harry and Scorpio, obviously. But for the long run, the, the rest of the characters... Most people couldn't care less about them. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's a very singular view film, isn't it? In, in its yeah, score. very much that that a plot.
location shots, the rooftop oh. shots, the fucking jazz music, like all the like uh, music they used in between scenes and like that opening scene. I love a lot of like the little bits around the edges, but when you just hammer home Clint Eastwood's dirty hair, I was just like, I don't give a shit about this guy. He's surface level. You know, you're supposed to give a fuck because he doesn't give a fuck. He's every gun owner's fantasy. Yeah, 100%. Siskel, four out of four. This movie sends a dangerous fucking message. That was his quote. I like this movie. It sends a dangerous message. This is how we should watch... It's a very adult way of looking at it. This is how we should watch movies. Yeah. You can enjoy the movie for a two-hour trip into another world and say... The message of this fucking sucks, but I enjoyed it. All right. I got to tell you, this guy's got a 30-06. He fires it off. Landon Groove fires with the right. And he's getting too excited because finally someone wants his opinion. Right hand right. twist. And he's starting to show what the right hand twist is. And I'm like, what is the right hand twist? Cut off. Yeah, well, the detainee has to bring up. Well, we're checking out any known killers whose birthday is in whatever the month Scorpio is. Maybe there's an astrology connection to all this. Is this Nancy Reagan America at this time? What the fuck is this? I guarantee you, Reagan saw this movie and loved it. Right? So now we meet Chico Gonzalez. The most fucking most stereotypical Mexican name you can come up with. It, Frito Bandito would be the only right. word. All right. Chico Gonzalez. I want to be obnoxious here for a second, but there's so much of our, of anybody. Played by Italian, by the way. Are you Italian? Yeah, he had Italian name. Oh, yeah. my God. Yeah. Uh, we weren't ready. We weren't ready to see a real Hispanic person play a Hispanic But person. think of all the people who go, I can't be racist. I have one black guy I consider a friend. Yeah, that that's, was, that's, that's Harry's get out of jail free card in every movie. Exactly. And there's, there's, they always have that moment where the guy's like, in the beginning, I'm not so sure about your tactics. At the end, you are doing God's work. Salute. Sure. So we learn that Chico, fresh out of college, ugh, you think with your head, you're going to get <laughs> shot that way. You think with your gut in this job. Which one's sociology, by the way? Yeah, he's like, yeah, I got a degree in sociology. Ugh. You have been invited to a commonplace, if somewhat grim, and social event known as a magnum party. The guest of dishonor, a choir boy named Scorpio, just a moment away from his eclipse, and then the dark eternity that meets all evil men. Charles Travis Scorpio, who when the good lord passed out of conscience, must have been out for a beer. Charles Travis Scorpio, in perhaps the last quiet moment of a violent life. His adversary, Harry Callahan, a man who carries the weight of society on his shoulder, a chip the size of the national debt. This is a man who has lived 41 undistinguished meaningless, pointless, failure-laden years, and who at this moment looks for an escape. For the past week, he has been cannonaded by all the enemies of his life. His deep-rooted disquiet about his own worth has zeroed in on him. 
landed on target and blown him apart. Harold Callahan, who by the standards of his profession is an aging over the hill relic of what was. A man who has left too many pieces of his youth in too many police reports filed suspect to go free. Charles Davis Scorpio is just what Harry Callahan has been waiting for his whole life in the Twilight Zone. This is where they bond because also Mexicans are also Catholic, by the way, Griff. You didn't know that. And they're like, God, the filth on this street. They're bonding. They're coming together. Chico's finally starting to see how the real world works. He's not in his Ivy League sociology class. He's on the streets, the mean streets. The mean streets. Cruising, if you will. Uh, he gets in a cherry picker. They go up. I'm gonna. How do you feel about this guy's glasses? They're pretty cool. No, no, this guy was yeah. pretty cool. I. How do you like my glass? Yeah, he was very William Smith. I did like him a lot. I would have had a good time talking to him. Talking him down. Yeah. Well, yeah, talking to him, and eventually he would come down. So Harry's like, "Hey, this here talk. You want to jump? Go ahead. I don't give a fuck." He's offended by what the Harry said. The guy is offended. You made me want to vomit, and then you told me I was going to jump into a mangled mess. Ah! <laughs> and he lunges at him to hit him, and Harry grabs him and pulls him into the bucket. Well, he punches him because he knocks the guy out. Oh, he did hit him? Yeah. Oh, Harry punched him yeah. is what you meant. But the guy did leap at him. So he had... He he, had, he lunged. He had... Everybody uh, saw it. Justifiable. Everybody saw it. He came at me. Comes down. He just throws the guy like a sack of shit off the cherry picker, and he's like... Now you know why they call me Dirty Harry. I gotta do every fucking dirty job in this goddamn city. And yeah, the guy starts losing his lunch. You're a bastard! <laughs> Lamest fucking <laughs> scene. I hated this scene. And yeah, the lethal weapon was very was better. Yeah. Because he literally was like, we're gonna go together. White <laughs> man's burden, people. Stop! Third teenage suspect shot dead by New York City police in four weeks brought another flood of complaints to the mayor's office today. The incident was in Spanish Harlem, where a police lieutenant chased an 18-year-old Puerto Rican boy into an empty building. The boy was suspected of shooting and wounding a police officer after a raid on a nearby liquor store. At the time the policeman entered the building, it was already surrounded by police. Among the questions being asked, was there not an easier way of getting the boy out than in a coffin? I tried, Lou, but all you got is enemies. That kid was only 17. The gun made him older. What the hell do they want a cop to do out there? They don't want to change the law. A kid can buy a gun easier than bubble gum. It would all come clean at the hearing. They put it down like I don't care. A gun-happy cop. I did try to talk him out of it, Helen. But I guess he wanted to be a comic book hero. Maybe he was just frightened, Lou. Yeah, he was scared. But he was dangerous, too. 
kid like that locked into the city streets can't find his way over the respectable white wall. He's full of rage. This way made the newspapers. We see we've we've seen this in a lot of movies, Hot and Cruising, those dangerous tunnels in the park where only in Scenic Clockwork Orange, only like hoodlums hide in. And sure enough, and did, what was going on with you? It looked like they were like a bunch of middle-aged guys. It was like it was like the villains from Nowhere to Run. Dude, they went full Nancy Reagan, Dangers of Dungeons and Dragons bullshit. These dudes were just out there role-playing, having some fun. <laughs> what? See a guy coming by. They were all white. They were all white. There you go. That's progressive. That is progressive? So, and they're like, he's like, I don't have time to deal with you. He pulls his gun out on him. They just fucking scurry away like the rats that they are. What was your favorite peak? We're on it. We're we're actually, on it. Yeah, we're on Mount Davidson, which I love. Um, I think it's. I think I hold it dearly in my heart from just years of running up to it, and also gazing up at it. Really, you know, you can see this this face that we're on that kind of comes out of the the forest, and it always looks quite majestic. Yeah. yeah. And so, to me, that is is the peak. I it's, think Mount Davidson is sort of like the underrated cousin to Twin Peaks but why do you like this one better exactly that (laughs) (laughs) I think um, you've got so many tourists on Twin Peaks and also the cars I think have now and obviously we we all feel probably quite strongly about this the cars have kind of ruined the vibe since they reopened that road Um, but I love that it's pedestrians up here everyone's just walking hiking around you can kind of come through the trails if you come from the other the side of mount davidson and then there's something great about the fact no one or not many people know it's the tallest peak in the city Uh so everyone goes to twin peaks thinking that's the tallest point and if you're a san franciscan maybe you already know that this is yeah and there's also a giant cross on Mm. the mountain which um I'm not particularly religious, and my little boys thought it was a plus sign for adding. <laughs> I just think about it as like, because the first time I saw it was in Dirty Harry, the movie. Mm. So I'm just like, oh, that's a Dirty Harry prop. I don't think about that. <laughs> the moral of what you've just seen is clear a maniac, a compulsive killer, a virus, a jam. Highly contagious and deadly in its effects. Born in the permissive age of Aquarius. Don't look for it only in Scorpio. Look for it in the mirror. You take this with a grain of salt or a shovel full of earth. In the twilight zone. And next morning, Harry's going to visit the district attorney. This is a scene we always got to have in these cops that play by their own rule movies. A fucking nerd is like, have you heard the recent Devo single that came out? I don't care what he did, Callahan. This man had rights. Have you ever heard the the Mandela effect? I mean... Mandela rights? Wait, what's Miranda the Miranda rights. Miranda rights. And he's like, he has the right to remain silent permanently. He's just like, he's got a, it's just back and forth. Harry's just disgusted that this monster, this animal has rights. Right. And the, the DA, he's like, hey, you don't have to talk to me. 
I have the top attorney from Berkeley sitting right here. Berkeley, most liberal college. Exactly, and he's a fucking nerd with a salt and pepper little fucking mustache, bald horseshoe head of hair. Uh, yes, sir. He had the patches on his elbows, on his blazer. That's right. Glasses down to the tip of his nose. Sir, I got Always tell you. thinks with his brain, never his gut. That he, guy, even know, he can't even locate his gut. That guy. The only thing that hits his gut is some kind of soy protein. Okay. So it's like, look, Harry, if you hadn't like done what you did, we could have something on him. But you fucking play by your own rules. You didn't read him his rights. You didn't take him in properly. Harry brought- pulls out his fucking laminated constitution. Says right here, I got the right. <laughs> Scorpio runs to the quarry where they're like grinding rocks and shit. Right. So you just got conveyor systems and everything. We're running around. We're playing peekaboo in here. They both have guns. They're both trying to get the edge on each other. Shooting back and forth. You know, nothing really interesting happening. I got, it, it just like so much of it like the tension is in the weird scenes like Scorpio had with the the liquor store they don't give us enough of that and the action scenes for me in this are this boring puts a gun to his head hey you fucking cop you ain't gonna shoot me I got a kid and then he's like drop the gun so Harry goes to drop it boom shoots fucking Scorpio in the shoulder Scorpio falls down. Okay. The six bullets are one. Badass scene, right? No! Because he does the exact same scene, which means that wasn't off the cuff the first time. He prepared this badass speech. You lost me. I was on Team Harry. You lost me in this last scene because this is such a bitch move. Like, I'm going to come up with the most badass fucking saying when I got, you know, in this situation. When you hear it the first time, like, that's a badass off-the-cuff situation. No, it's a prepared statement. Yes. Which makes it weak. Yes, 100%. That's his Miranda rights, is telling people, Oh, do you feel lucky? <laughs> do I feel lucky, punk? Milius, sorry, you should have come up with a new badass like line. You shouldn't have just repeated it. I'm with you now with Harry. I'm like, fuck this guy. Because that's a total, like, wannabe tough guy thing. Like, you're waiting for this moment yeah. where you're going to say your most prepared badass line. It's pretty close to just a straight, like, MAGA movie. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. like what is he championing? What is he the hero of? And how how he acts without any regard for for authority? You know, Dirty Harry would be he'd be storming the Capitol. You know, guarantee he'd be like, leading the know. Tiki Torch rally. <sighs> Except he wouldn't it, even team up. He would. He actually, it's scary. He'd be. The one that's on the FBI watch list and like straight up NRA propaganda. It feels like, oh, the only way to stop a bad guy with a gun is to have a good guy with a with a cooler gun. Right. Yeah. This man will be able to shoot using his whatever Magnum gun that he's got incredible aim with somehow. I don't know how. Right. 
is able to right. beat a guy with like a sniper rifle and a distance shoot off. It's crazy. In modern day, Dirty Harry is definitely, definitely, as a police officer, one of the ones you hear about on Twitter. Oh, you know what he would have done and why he would be trending police overreach and he was not going to be held accountable for these actions. He gets a guy on the ground, he's fired his shot, they had a little shootout. He does it like two or three times in the movie and he's like, did I fire five? And it's a classic movie line. Classic movie line. It's like considered one of the coolest movie lines, right? Mm -hmm. Did I fire six shots or five? Well, do you feel lucky, punk? (laughs) Mm -hmm. It's like, what, man? This isn't the time to be like playing sadistic riddle games. Put the cuffs on him or keep him moving. Throw some cuffs on him. You haven't seen him throw cuffs on anybody in this movie. Like, he's he's not doing anything by the book. His cool lines about the gun and the the bullet will blow a hole through the back of your head and blah, blah, blah. If he wasn't on the side of supposed good, you'd be like, oh, man, I'm scared. This is a wild, wild... Unhinged. Unhinged villain. Yeah. They give no kind of... Sure, there's good and evil, it's easy to see Harry as evil if you don't put him next to something more evil. And so that's why they put him next to whoever this crazy guy is. Harry's just shooting people in the street, right? And right. his justification is uh, nothing, nothing. It's got to be done. I, I guess it. his justification is that it's criminals, but what, 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 what they're calling criminals. You know, he falls a bank robbery in like the second major set piece. And, and then there's a black guy on the ground, right? And he gives his line about the, how many bullets have I used. But it was like, oh, that guy's robbing a bank. So anything that happens to him is justified, you know? Right. And I think that's a cultural message that comes out a lot. And it's stronger now, even than it was maybe in 71. Being that Harry notices a black man in a car, he's like, there's got to be a crime about to happen. So he plays it cool, though. He's like, Jay Jaffe, uh, is that car across the street still running? I don't know. Well, is there any exhaust coming out the back? Yeah, there is. That's terrible. And then he's like, hey, hey call this number and say uh, a robbery's in progress. Quentin Tarantino. Cinema speculation. The bank robbery. What makes the scene political is the casting of three black men to play the bank robbers. If the robbers had been played by three white actors, the scene wouldn't have had a political context. Harry would just be a cop who came across a bank robbery and stopped it. 
just like Superman has done in about a thousand issues of his comic book. If the robbers had been white, they would have been viewed more or less as professional criminals. Since we've had professional criminals robbing banks since we've had banks, nothing in the scene would have been indicative of societal change. But let's try on some other racial or ethnic groups for size. The reason it would play odd is because the nightly news isn't full of stories of Latin or Asian bank robbery crews. But then neither is bank robbery a crime associated with black Americans. That is, except for, at that particular time, one subsection of black America. Militant black revolutionaries who robbed banks to buy weapons. And just look at one of the robbers in Dirty Harry, and you can tell they got their wardrobes in the Black Panther section of Warner Brothers' costume department. For many white Americans, angry black militants scared them more than the Manson family, the Zodiac Killer, and the Boston Strangler combined. The hippies disgusted them because the hippies were their children and they were disgusted with their children. Hippies burning the flag in protest of the Vietnam War made them livid with anger. But black militants scared the fuck out of them. The anger, the rhetoric, the agenda, the uniform, the posing for pictures with automatic weapons, their hatred of the police, and the dismissal of white America. White folks can never comprehend a situation where they can't be forgiven for past transgressions. Yet, there was Harry Callahan. He wasn't scared. Not only was he not scared, as he approached a shotgun-wielding stand-in for a Black Panther, he couldn't even be bothered to stop chewing his hot dog. He even faces him down with an empty weapon, complete with smart-mouthed cracker cop talk meant to antagonise. With the word punk, at least replacing the word boy. These qualities gave Siegel's film a dubious morality and a faintly disturbing undercurrent. As opposed to superhero Harry, which is what he would become in the shoddy sequels. When Dirty Harry shoots somebody, he barely gets reprimanded and immediately gets put on the next high-profile case. Right away. You know? Mm -hmm. And his answer to all of it is, like, what's now a classic cop movie trope. Oh, they won't let me investigate the way I want to. I'll turn in my badge and just go solo and vigilante it. And it's like... yep. This guy is so evil that you have to step outside of the normal rules, yes. which is just Batman also. <laughs> That's so true. That's Superman. That's superheroes. You know, it's, like, it's all superheroes. Yep. But you have to step outside of the normal rules to catch them. And, you know, it's almost like you have to unleash an animal just as dangerous as the one you're hunting to catch them. 
just walking around with a gun being like, I think I see someone who's black and he's sitting in front of a bank for too long. All right, let me figure this out real quick. See, I knew it. I called it. I feel like it's yeah. just playing into his fantasy. He he tells the he's at the cafe across the street. He tells the server, "Hey, is that guy in the car across the bank still there? Uh, yeah. Black dude in a car." Yes, of course he's there. Okay, call the cops, let them know. I think there's a bank robbery happening. He's being cool as hell, just eating. Then he hears the alarm, he goes outside, he does the famous line, he's shooting everything. I feel like that scene alone is the birth of Karen behavior. Where people who watch that go, okay, I'm, I'm a Karen because I think I can be involved in everything. Yeah. And... I'm, I'm going to be right. I'm going to be right no matter what. So I have a right to go over there, get in someone's face, disturb them because wow. I, I know the rules. The first word we see before we see any people of color is the N-word. It's dropped hard in that right. just right away. I'm going to kill this and, I'm, and a priest. And you're like, okay, yeah. okay. Right away that's, we that's, hear that. That's where we're starting? Yeah, we're yeah. starting there. Whenever he makes a little sly joke or comment, you know, like the racist comments to to the criminals or his uh, his partner, I'm always like, Man, I want to punch this dude, man. <laughs> like, just the way he does it, the smugness is like so something I've encountered so much in real life. It's like the worst kind of right. <laughs> to experience. Yeah, it's a it's a personality type that it can exist without getting punched in the face because they have a gun. And even his his humor. I don't really feel like he has a sense of humor, even though he's trying to, he's make the characters making jokes and stuff. It's like, mm-hmm. you don't seem like a person that laughs to me or that your laughs are about the thing everybody else is laughing about. <laughs> it's like, he, it's like in his mind, to me, he either made it a lot dirtier or a lot bloodier, whatever the joke is. Right. In a way right. that then makes it not funny, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. When, you, when you're in a big group and he's there and everyone's laughing, then you hear his kind of laugh. You go, oh, shoot. No, what's Because you know he's about? laughing like this. He's like, everybody else is cracking up. Ah, and he goes. <laughs> and it's like delayed a second or two late because, you know, he thought about something else more messed up. Yeah, something <laughs> that darker. That made it funny to him. He, he hired a black dude to beat him up. The killer did hire a black dude to beat him up so he would look like a victim of police brutality. Yes. <laughs> incredible. Incredible. Like, I don't even know what the message is behind that. That's just incredible. Because he could have hired anybody to beat him up within the world of a movie and a creator's imagination. Truly. They were like, yeah, get a black thug guy. Yeah, yeah. And I'll say that actor did a great job in that role. He was kind of cool. He was he like, was. he did it. He got a couple extra punches in, which 
I think is almost a way of being like putting black revenge in movies that a lot of white movies do. Mm. Have a black guy get an extra punch in or get an extra thing. Right. And say a slick line after. And it's like, yeah, black people aren't so they're going to get they're going to get something good. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. They start come up and it's not my movie, but you know what? Yeah. I, I had a little bit of a say. And then they're I'm out. a friend of the, I'm a the writers and director. I'm a we're friends of blacks. Look, he got an extra <laughs> punch in when he was hired to beat this white guy up to frame the police. He had a dead wife, which is yeah. another trope mm-hmm. we'll get into in a movie where it's bigger in a movie, but the dead wife, dead mom trope of movies is so intense. Mm-hmm. And used as a justification for so much in a way that's outsized from reality, I think. Especially the realities of the people that experience it. Right. You know, because it'll be like suburban people or rich people or people doing all right. Like, I got a dead and my mom died when I was, you know, man, we, we, we're using that in a way that's also kind of speaks volumes from the culture. And it's right. a way to kind of inject the femininity into a movie without using actual women in the movie. Cause this movie had no other Ooh, story. None. He had no life outside of being a cop. Nobody else really did except for when his partner was like, I can't be a cop anymore. I'm going to go be a teacher. And his wife was there with him. right. <laughs> Otherwise there was no semblance of a world outside of what was happening with dirty Harry as a cop. Right. Even lethal weapon where I think he had like, a similar situation it was like always on his mind it was like the thing that drove him but this one it's like something that happened yeah that's tossed away like that doesn't justify anything it's not even related to his job why she died we don't have no idea dirty harry is taxi driver except as a cop obsessed and potentially any of those things that we see now that could be him but they're like, he had a wife. And I'm like, uh, how was that relationship for real? Let's be honest. If this movie were made now, he would almost certainly like maybe not have a dead wife, but instead have a daughter and a wife and a daughter live somewhere else in town or something. Mm-hmm. And that's like his motivation or he's sad because he can't be with his daughter or something. And they would yeah. be like, that movie had so much heart. This has been a love story about two lonely people who found each other in the Twilight Zone. Quentin Tarantino Cinema Speculation Scorpio's inhumanity was beyond the beyond. All the better for Harry to blast him with the most powerful handgun in the world. The film creates the first cops after a serial killer thriller. Most cops in 70s action films were busy busting dope rings or mafia Mr. Biggs. But from the 80s until today, cops after serial killers is the main occupation of the movie policeman. Cruising... Manhunter, Silence of the Lambs, Seven, are all children of Siegel's Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry belongs to a list of other audience-enthralling films of the 1970s, like Jaws, Carrie, Annie Hall, and The Exorcist. 
that in retrospect seem like perfect films. Siegel's technique, along with all of his strengths, blend together in complete harmony. The director's handling of the film's hero and villain. His career constant affinity for location photography. The Siegel humour that punctuates what is in essence a grisly thriller. The biggest flaw of the movie is the belaboured symbolism of the broken peace sign belt. There's been a lot of speculation over the years whether or not Harry Callahan is a racist character, or Dirty Harry is a fascist film, or both. In Charles Hingham's book, Celebrity Circus, the author interviewed both Eastwood and Siegel on the set of Dirty Harry. Siegel described Eastwood's character as a racist son of a bitch who blames everything on the blacks and Hispanics. Well, the character Siegel is describing is not the character in the movie he made. In the film, Harry may be politically incorrect, but he's not a racist son of a bitch. The film would be better, or at least more serious, if he was. But then it would be Taxi Driver, which even more than the Cobra clones to follow is the real bastard stepchild of Dirty Harry and Death Wish. But it's doubtful if Dirty Harry could ever work as potently as it does if it dared challenge its genre to that degree. The artistry of Siegel's picture is in its creative, provocative effectiveness. Harry's a great character. Scorpio's a great character. The story really works. It's a movie you can really watch a dozen times. But it's the sleek execution of a genre master that makes it sing. For this and other reasons, even Siegel's friend, Sam Peckinpah, expressed the same opinion as Pauline Kael. I love Dirty Harry, even though I was appalled by it. A terrible piece of trash that Don Siegel really made something out of. Hated what it was saying, but the day I saw it, the audience was cheering. Does anything in the movie that Harry does depict outright fascism? No. When he fires on the black bank robbers in the hot dog scene, they were running from a bank, alarm blaring, jumping into a speeding car with both money and pump-action shotguns in their hands. The ridiculous Joseph Summer scene, where they show Scorpios killed all these people and they refuse to let Callahan keep Scorpio under surveillance? This scene is guilty of presenting the liberal argument as dumbfoundingly absurd. 
And yet the only sequence that truly qualifies as fascist is when Callahan tortures Scorpio. One of the big reasons Dirty Harry fails to outrage anymore is that Siegel's film had another agenda that the critics chose to ignore, but the public got right away. As much as Dirty Harry is a white western fantasy played out against a modern-day San Francisco backdrop, it is also a plea for new laws for new crimes. The serial killer phenom, to be exact. And one of the reasons Dirty Harry ages well is when it comes to catching and stopping Scorpio. What the film preaches is pretty much what society ended up doing in relation to that type of crime. At the same time, Our familiarity with the genre, a genre that this film officially started, dates the techniques of the investigation. It would appear that Callahan and his rookie partner Gonzalez are the only two investigators on the case of a madman who's terrorising the entire city. Where's the task force? Where's the FBI? Without these societal advantages we now employ against this type of crime, nothing Harry does in 1971 seems unjustified. Back in 1971, both Andy Robinson's bravara performance and his character's methods were from a new-to-movies villain. There had never been a movie fiend quite like Scorpio before, or a performance quite like Robinson's. In Pauline Kael's review in The New Yorker, she never refers to the character or the actor by name. Nor does she write one word regarding his performance. Instead, she refers to the film's antagonist by a plethora of sarcastic bogeyman names, hippie maniac, the many-sided evil one, super evil dragon. Her point was, in order for the audience to be on Harry's side, the filmmakers needed to contrive of a boogeyman of such evil dimensions that anything Harry does seems justified. In Dirty Harry, Siegel, Reisner, Eastwood, and especially Robinson, gave us a forward-looking glance at what would replace the monsters of old in the collective nightmare of a society to come. During its initial engagement, every audience member of Dirty Harry entered the cinema with an innocent view and innocence we would soon lose. Inspector Dietrich? Inspector Dietrich? Fred? 
Can you hear me? Just nod if you can hear me. That's fine. Now, just let me organize my papers here and we'll start the interview. Alright. I've already started the tape recorder, Inspector Dietrich, as this is an official interview. My name is Overalt, and I will be advocating on your behalf for recompense for injuries that occurred on the job and the associated medical costs. Are you okay with being recorded, Inspector? If so, just nod in agreement. I know it's painful to move your head, that you're, you're able to move it very far due to the neck bandage. So I'm going to assume that you moved your head. Well, first, Inspector, may I call you Fred? Oh, whoa, that crack sounded painful, but uh, thank you for your cooperation. Uh, what I'd like to do, Fred, is list the injuries sustained while you and Inspector Harry Callahan attempted to arrest Murray Anderson and Philip Musselman on September 15th, 1969. Is that all right with you? Mm-mm. Good, good. Now, according to your medical files here, you suffered a number of injuries during the arrest. Oh, wait, oh, it's that crack again. Oh. There's no need to respond, Fred. That wasn't a question. So, listing your injuries, I'll... Well, I'll start from the bottom and we'll work our way up. How does that sound? Oof. Oh, dear, that was purely rhetorical, Fred. Uh, please keep your head still. Your uh, grimaces of pain are quite disturbing. Now, as I understand it, you have fractured two ankles... A broken leg, a torn knee, and you've also fractured your pelvis. <laughs> I suppose that's why your lower half is encased in this huge cast, Fred, right? <laughs> no, no, Fred, please do not attempt to use your arms to agree with me. No, as you know, your right hand has been badly fractured and your left arm is broken in two places. One, a serious compound fracture, and now your neck... I'm sorry, Fred. What are you looking at? Your eyes are... You're looking at your shoulder. Oh! Oh, you were stabbed in your left shoulder. That's right. And what now? Your right shoulder. You were stabbed in both your left and right shoulder. Yes. Shoulders. My apologies. I missed that page in the folder. Paperwork. Am I right, Fred? (laughs) Oh, sorry, ouchie. I'm sorry to make you move your head so often during this interview, Fred. I can see you are in quite a bit of discomfort with all the apparatus preventing head movement. Uh, Maybe it would be better if you simply blinked, such as one for yes, two blinks for no. How does that sound? Yes, no, Wait, was that four blinks, Fred? I, I don't. Wait, that was five. Now, I mean, I don't think you're get quite getting the idea here. My eyes are hurting. Oh, you can speak. Oh, I thought you wouldn't be able to talk with your jaw wired shut. This is good news. You made my task here much easier. (laughs) Now, if you don't mind, 
I'll finish itemizing your injuries, and then we can move on to discuss the actual incident. Be my guest, you. I, I want for you. Well, never mind. That was uh, quite a strain. Uh, I think you should lie back and stick to your simple yes and no answers, Fred. Uh, that's right. Lay back. Relax. Your face is all red. Uh, yeah. We don't want the doctors to be mad at me, do we, Fred? Now, where were we? Let me see... Severe lacerations to the neck, two fractured vertebrae, jaw wide shut, broken orbital bone, partially severed ear, and a fractured skull. Is that everything? My, my stomach. Your stomach? Yeah. Uh, let me see here. Oh, yeah, I missed that darn page. Uh, Yes, that darn Miss Page. Looks like you were shot two times in the stomach as well. You, that must have hurt. You can... You can. I can imagine. <laughs> yes, well, I could. But I really don't like to think about it. All this violence makes me uh, very uncomfortable. Now, Fred, let's discuss what happened on the night in question. I'm going to read from the incident report. And if there are any problems with what I'm describing... You let me know. Okay? Okay, Fred? Fred, are you awake? Oh, there you are. Your eyes were closed, so I thought you might be, uh, dead. Eyes still sore. Of course they are, poor fella. Oh, does that hurt when I pat you there? Excuse me. Now, on the night in question... You, Inspector Fred Dietrich, and Inspector Harry Callahan were patrolling the North District, correct? Yes. Yes. And Officer Callahan was driving, and you were in the passenger seat. Yes. So during your patrol, you saw a vehicle that raised your suspicion, and you pursued it. No. No. No? saw muscle, muscle flash. Ah, I see. You saw a gun had been fired, so you attempted to pull the vehicle over. But it sped off? Yes, yes. Shortly after, the car in question hit a dumpster as it attempted to turn into a back alley and the patrol car with Officer Callahan at the wheel crashed into it. No chance. To avoid the collision. Yes, that's what (sighs) Callahan maintains. But I wonder. You can. I you can, can but wonder. Very true. Very true. Tell me, Fred, were you wearing your seatbelt? No. No. Well, that explains your first concussion and the lacerations around your neck. It says here you were bent over trying to retrieve your revolver, which had dropped while taking it out of his holster. Is that correct? Never saw it Coming. No, I imagine it was quite the surprise when your head hit the dumpster. <laughs> well, let's leave that alone for now. So, according to the report, Callahan insisted that you remain in the car while he pursued the men who had fled the vehicle, but you refused. Partner. Yes, well, you couldn't let him face two violent criminals alone, but you both broke several regulations. 
What you should have done is both remain with the vehicle and call for backup. Did that occur to you? You, you can... Guess you were both afraid um, the criminals might escape. God forbid. So you and Callahan agreed to split up. He entered from the front of the building, and you agreed to make your way up the fire escape. Excuse me, Fred. I don't wish to be offensive, but you hardly seem the person who should be climbing up fire escapes. Why was Callahan going in the front door? We agreed... We agreed. You agreed? Yes, my turn. My You take turns with dangerous assignments? Coin flip. You flipped a coin? Yeah. If I may ask, uh, how often does Inspector Callahan lose the coin flip? Never. Never. I wonder if Callahan is a very good partner. The best. The best. But before you both went your respective ways, you made a bet. Yes. Yes. The last one there had to buy the other, uh, hot dogs. Brother-in-law cooks hot dogs. Do you mean your brother-in-law has a hot dog stand? Yes, yes. Really? Which one? Jaffe's. Jaffe's? Oh. Oh, those are quite good. Oh. Well, fair enough. So, Callahan entered the building around the front, and you climbed the fire escape. That's right. Hmm, yes. Now, I'm afraid that I'll have to speculate on the subsequent events based on the investigation of the scene. Now, as I said earlier, you are not the ideal candidate for fire escape climbing, being somewhat short and... Perhaps enjoying your brother-in-law's hot dogs too much? But you were in luck. The suspect's car had come to rest below the fire escape, so you simply had to use the car to reach the ladder to the fire escape. What you didn't know was that the building was derelict and suffering neglect. When you reached the third floor, the fire escape, which was not actually attached to the building, toppled into the wall of the neighboring building. Yep. Here, you fractured an ankle and broke your arm the first time. I don't remember. And likely received your first concussion. (laughs) Now, Fred, it is a case of shutting the barn door, but according to police regulations, detailed blueprints for the building should have been obtained from city planning before attempting entry. What? And this is a good example of why. You can... You Imagine can, your surprise. You can. But this is the cost of such carelessness. At any rate, you were fortunate. And I use that word lightly. There was a window in the wall you were crashed into. But as you attempted to climb inside, it fell shut, smashing your right hand. Painful. I can't imagine. You wrenched your hand free and fell back against the fire escape, causing it to dislodge, sending the whole structure to the ground and taking you with it. All a blur. You suffered your second concussion. When you awoke, you found yourself amid the wreckage of the fire escape, pinned to the ground by its ladder, which had somehow plunged into both your shoulders. Indeed. 
Lucky for you, the rung of the ladder didn't wring your neck. If lying pinned to the ground amid the wreckage of a fire escape can be called lucky. Uh, although it did break your jaw as well. Uh, you may have lain there for the remainder of the night. But then the two top stories of the fire escape broke away from the building, falling directly onto you. you wow, you don't say... I do say, oh. Fred. And it is purely by chance or miracle that you escaped death or dismemberment. Uh, Admittedly, the ladder was dislodged from your shoulder by falling debris, but you received a compound fracture in your already broken arm and lost part of your right ear. So lucky. Lucky. You know, I really think we're stretching the meaning of that word. Lucky would have been sitting at home watching TV. Idiot box. Yeah, yeah. Fred from the ladder, you eventually came to your senses and returned to the building. Need I point out to you, Fred, that seriously injured as you were, you should have remained with the patrol car. My partner. Yes, yes, okay. I'll continue. You found a back door and forced your way in. Despite your multitude of injuries, you climbed the back stairs, searching each floor, until you reached the fifth, where you found Callahan pinned down to great disadvantage by two gunmen. Sort of remember. You were able to sneak around behind the gunmen and pull Uh, your gun on them. I had my gun? No, you'd lost it somewhere below, but your right hand was mangled and you couldn't hold a gun anyway. Uh, you did, however, draw the men's attention away from Callahan. They shot you twice in the stomach, but that gave Harry the time to subdue them. Subdue? Well, kill them. It gave Callahan time to kill them. That was... that then? Not quite. Uh, after you were shot, you took several steps backwards and fell into an open elevator shaft. Luckily for you, there I go using that word again... Luckily for you, uh, the elevator car was only two floors down when you landed on the roof of the car, breaking your leg, fracturing several vertebrae in your neck, and possibly fracturing your skull. Although that may have happened earlier. Needless to say, you'll have to answer some questions concerning your lost service pistol, uh, but they'll wait on that investigation until you're back to you work. Can't, you can't... can... Try to find it? Well, we searched the area, but uh, it didn't turn up. Don't worry. In light of the events, you should only receive uh, a week or two suspension without pay. Fra- no biggie. Fractured pelvis. Oh, the fractured pelvis. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that's quite amusing. <laughs> The ambulance attendants dropped you on a fire hydrant while taking you out of the building. So lucky. Oh, I'm afraid your luck had run out by that point, Fred. (laughs) So, when your hands and arms are working again, I'll be back for your signature on the insurance forms. Oh, my apologies, Fred. I forgot how painful it was when I gave your arm a pat earlier. You can... Send the forms over... No, Fred, I prefer the no, personal no, touch. No, you can... Drop by any time? Thank you, Fred, but uh, I'm quite busy these days. No, uh, you can call me Dietzik, and while you're 
at it, you can go to hell too. That's very nice, Inspector. And don't think I can't see what you're trying to do with your hand. Suppose I'm fortunate that all your fingers were broken. Goodbye.